Cristiano Ronaldo is headed to Manchester United, but there's a lot of players who won't be on the move in the international break. On Sport on Lot, inside the clashes between FIFA and Europe's clubs and leagues over demand players have to travel to World Cup qualifiers regardless of pandemic quarantine restrictions. Ultimately, they will want to play at Qatar 2022. This week, though, fresh concerns from Amnesty about migrant worker deaths there. FIFA certainly back in Qatar, but Gianni Infantino has been boasting this week how much FIFA has transformed. We have been able to fundamentally change FIFA from a toxic organization to a highly esteemed and trusted global sports governing body. We'll analyze if Infantino is right, especially as their PR push for a World Cup every two years meets resistance. Hello and welcome to the podcast digesting the best of the week sports news with interviews and analysis. And thank you to the growing numbers of listeners, particularly welcome to those in Saudi Arabia, where we were 26th in the Apple Sports Podcast charts last week. And you can always hit subscribe so we drop into your feed. I'm Rob Harris from the Associated Press and alongside me as ever, Martin Ziegler from The Times and Tarek Panja from The New York Times. And we should have all been in Turkey at the moment, shouldn't we? Yeah, we should have been in Istanbul for the Champions League draw, the UEFA Player of the Season awards, but Turkey is, of course, on the red list. I think Istanbul was basically chosen as a uh, to try and give something back after they had the Champions League final moved from there in May. Um, Yeah, sad not to be in Istanbul, Tarek. Yeah, one of my favourite cities. Istanbul obviously had the Champions League taken away from them two years in a row. For those of you not aware what red list means, those are countries that are deemed high risk for coronavirus by the UK government and would require you to quarantine for up to 10 days in a hotel at a cost of how much, Rob? More than £2,000. So I don't think it was necessarily worth it to uh, just to go to a UEFA draw and meetings to... um sit in a hotel for 10 days at that cost, uh, perhaps with a view of Heathrow or something. But uh, that's the fate that also would have been befalling many footballers too if they'd been going away for their countries on international duty. Because, of course, this is the week when we've seen the Premier League in particular, all the clubs decide that none of their players will be going off on international duty to red list countries, particularly, of course, all the South American ones. Other countries include Egypt, so the ball started rolling when we knew that uh, Mohamed Salah wouldn't be going away from Liverpool to link up with Egypt. And it's created a bit of a row through the week between FIFA, the leagues, the European Club Association and particularly the British government. Yeah, a bit of a row is probably putting it lightly, isn't it? I mean, it's this is probably one of the biggest crises facing FIFA over the, the COVID pandemic, I think. Um because they, in a, in a position, they haven't really got anything to bargain with. We've had Gianni Infantino pleading with Boris Johnson to give the players exemptions. Because um, that is, as far as FIFA is concerned, I think that is the only way out of this problem, is, is somehow to try and appeal to the better nature of the British government. But, Tarek, you, you don't think that the government should give footballers exemptions. Is that right? Uh, yeah, I don't, to be honest, because this is a nationwide pandemic affecting um, businesses and people, obviously outside of the, the football orbit, which likes to see itself as the centre of the world often. Um, and it's not just the UK. Um, La Liga has issued a statement saying it would support any of its teams who um, would, would, would withhold 
the release of their players should they face quarantine upon their return. And um, on Wednesday night, it was a turn of Serie A to say the same thing. If you look at the Copa America, which was which was played this summer, those three leagues had more than 20 people apiece, 20 players apiece sent to, to that tournament. That affects quite a lot of players. The Premier League statement said across the board, it will be 60, 60 of the Premier League players who could be affected by having to travel to a red list country. So this is a this is a major issue. So yeah, beyond my kind of personal issue that this this there shouldn't be a special exemption for football because it's football, uh, given all sorts of other industries and 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 and, and people have been affected by this. Um, I also think this is a very interesting moment to talk about the power of FIFA and where power lies in in the game. There was negotiations over this issue with the European leagues and with the clubs um, in July, and and they've known about this for some time. And it's not just the quarantine. It is the fact that they've extended the player release, which is in a a memorandum of understanding with leagues and clubs, for for up to 10 days. That's that's what it's been for years. You have these windows and, and players are released for up to 10 days FIFA unilaterally, after those talks, increased it to 12 days because they wanted these triple headers to be played in, in South America because games were postponed as a result of the coronavirus. A 12-day release without quarantine, without any of the red list issues we're talking about, would have meant that the players would most likely miss um, an extra weekend of league play. So when when competitions begin again, even if they do not have to quarantine, those players who are sent to South America would likely miss the matches for their clubs and and the leagues and the teams would say, oh, hang on a minute, that, that's not fair. Obviously, we pay their wages and train them, etc. And, you know, we've seen titles decided by goal difference and points uh, by one point uh, relegation too. And at the end of the season, if that's the case and it's because some, you know, one of your top players hasn't played, they would deem that to be not fair. And we did get that statement from the FIFA president, Gianni Infantino, during the week. No ability to ask questions ourselves. He's not faced the media since May. And it really did focus on that request to Boris Johnson to get the quarantine exemptions. It didn't really address the points particularly raised by La Liga about the um, scheduling issues in terms of the late return to play the games and missing the weekend. And then he said in it, together we've shown solidarity in unity in the fight against COVID-19. Now I'm urging everyone to ensure the release of international players for the upcoming World Cup qualifiers, almost sort of suggesting, well, isn't the pandemic over? Get on with football again. Yeah, I guess what he's saying, and also people who are close to FIFA and some of those confederations who are privately contacting us, you know, saying, well, the leagues, we've we've really supported the leagues and the clubs at the start of the coronavirus. We cancelled international games or move them in order for, for, for league games to be scheduled. But the reality is those international games could never have been played at the start of the pandemic. You couldn't travel. So, yes, they cancelled those games. Yes, matches were played domestically behind closed doors. But wasn't that the only option? If there was the option of global travel, let, let's see if they would have been as flexible. It just seems like, to me, a bit of, um, you know, sabre-rattling, etc. And um, this idea of... Um, a hearts and minds exercise to say we did you a favor you owe us one but but it is this point and rob you know we saw it was kind of super league where yeah super league failed obviously because it was such a flawed idea 
But one of the underpinnings behind what they were saying was, look, these organizations like FIFA and UEFA, they're all powerful. They get to dictate the way the entire game is played. Whereas clubs and leagues and whoever else, other stakeholders, horrible word, they they rarely get a look in, despite having a major kind of investment in the game and a major say in player development, they don't have a say in, in, in the regulations or, or calendar dates. And, and we're coming into this really important period, Rob, of, um, of this debate over the future of the international match calendar. And the battle was actually highlighted in the statement we got from the European Club Association to its own members, which uh, said the ECA will not accept that a governing body like FIFA abuses its regulatory function in order to place its commercial interest and those of its member associations above the physical well-being of players and legitimate sporting interests of clubs. Of course, the ECA, currently headed by PSG President Nasser Al-Khalifa, a Qatari, Yet this does impact the 2022 World Cup uh, road to qualifying for that. And yet the ECA were speaking out in pretty strong terms that the uh, that FIFA haven't actually pushed back on. I mean, FIFA have been accused of abusing its dominance in the game uh, and all this, which is highlighting those governance issues where it has this role organising the World Cup, which produces most of its several billion in revenue and also running the game as well and set an international calendar, ultimately. Yeah, as um, the European leagues, the other kind of umbrella body, uh, you know, what it does on the tin, uh, names on the tin, um, an umbrella body for the top European leagues, said basically FIFA is acting like judge and jury. And, you know, and I dare say in this case, you know, executioner as well, because it's going to be able to punish the the. The, the 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 leagues or clubs that are not compliant right under the under the regulations um perhaps it's time to recalibrate where where power lies in the game and whether that's fair and the things that's perhaps overlooked on this whole designation of red list countries by the uk is it's not just about the inconvenience of hotel quarantine on return it's that the British government is advising against travel to these countries because of the high coronavirus cases. People should only be going there from the UK in the most vital circumstances. So that's a good enough reason for players not to go. Of course, there are some, some suggestions that actually some are not happy with the decision. Edison Cavani, Manchester United and Uruguay posting those question marks on social media. So very much could be the clubs who are sort of going behind this. And... Yet, throughout the pandemic, Gianni Fantino, often appearing at WHO events, has been sort of preaching that health is the most important thing. Well, if health is the most important thing, then no risk to taking and uh, no player should be going to South America if they don't want to, the clubs don't want to, uh, uh, well as the, um, you know, the burden on their bodies as well. I mean, actually, mm. you know, Richarlison was due to go out with... Uh, from Everton to Brazil. Of course, he's just come back from the Copa America and the uh, Olympics and has already started the new season uh, with Everton and would have this congested time frame of games to then get back to the Premier League. Yeah, no, the, the, you made a good point earlier as well. Like, it's really uh, almost unfair on the players to have to pick, etc. A lot of these the Brazilians, they love playing for the national team. Edinson Cavani obviously loves playing for Uruguay as well. Um but the circumstances are are what they are. How, you know, perhaps this talks about in the future, and we, we've been discussing this for, for maybe the last couple of years, that 
the, the way the calendar works now, where these windows appear for international football in the middle of the league season are no longer fit for purpose. And you're going to have a league block and an international football block and then a tournament block. That might make more sense. And we might not have this situation in, in such an extreme circumstance like we have it now, that these are kind of demarcated periods of football because these these international players do love playing for their countries, particularly South American. I mean, this extension of the of the release window, you're right, for, for the, the rest of Europe, this is a really major issue. For example, PSG were planning to have Messi make his home debut um, and at the, the, the match after the international window. As things stand now, he won't be able to play in that their their first home game since uh, since he's been signed, where he's available to play because he'll be either traveling traveling back from South America. Um, PSG, I understand, have written to FIFA; they've not had a reply. Um, but I think it's it's just one of those things. And obviously, Nasser El Khalifi, the PSG president, is is the, also the chairman of the European Club Association, who are putting some pretty serious pressure on FIFA too. Yeah, um, think about all those. Um... Socios tokens now, you know, they would be hoping to ramp up the price of the cryptocurrency in in um, in PSG as the build up to Lionel Messi's home debut gathered pace. Unfortunately, those token holders will now now have to wait. Um, <laughs> now, joking aside, that 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 issue is another one uh, we might have to briefly touch on, guys. These these newfangled cryptocurrencies that are appearing. Leeds United uh, have got, we had Parag Marate on talking about growing the club uh, last week on the pod. Uh, one of these new revenue streams are, are these um, cryptocurrencies, these coins that, that fans can invest in to show their loyalty and to engage with their club. Do, do, I, I'll be honest, I don't really understand how all this works. And that's part of the problem. You know, the normal fan getting, well, getting involved in cryptocurrency trading, that just seems that, you know, <laughs> This unregulated, largely unregulated market, um, kind of for most of us, um, it's, it's another language we probably don't understand, and it's to show your loyalty to your team. This isn't. This is. Do you think this is a correct way to to try and foster fan engagement by asking fans to pay for the privilege? I mean, there's a sense of brand trustworthiness because they're sponsoring Premier League clubs. It's something that actually then would see fans have faith in that product and believing in it. But it doesn't mean, of course, that um, that is the case. And there are a lot of concerns raised about the, um, you know, the sense of actually, first of all, what control, what power do fans actually get? What what say on decisions? It's things like the music at half time or something, isn't it? It's not really significant decisions. And they're putting money in without any real guarantees of what they're going to get back. Well, not just putting money in. They can look, they're, they're also could lose the money as well. This is a, um, a, a currency, a cryptocurrency like Bitcoin or all the other ones that can go up or down. Now, the idea of converting fan loyalty into a um, tradable commodity, into an asset class, by the way, that even if you're not a fan, it's like any other coin, any of these newfangled um, uh, coins that anyone, you don't have to be a fan. So there are investors in this thing who are looking to make money off it um, as it trades up and down. The, the, the typical fan, the idea of fan sentiment being the, 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 the thing that motor that powers this seems to be a little bit off because, for example, when Lionel Messi signed for PSG, 
the volume of trading was extremely high and the price actually went down. It was, you would have thought if it was based on fans being excited, etc., this this type of movement would have been upwards. It's, it's very confusing. Yeah, it's very confusing. And also the clubs, I'm not sure, are, are, are really telling their fans that they could lose their money. I think Leeds did in, in, a, in a statement. but It's not as though you're sort of getting a seat at the table in terms of sort of um, having a supporters representative on the board from the people owning these these socios. It's um, so yeah, not not surprisingly, there's a, there's a bit of scepticism around this. Um, I'm certainly sceptical. I wouldn't invest in in any myself um, because I think it. I mean, it, you know, it, I suppose you could argue on the other, you know, like like shares. Shares go up and down, so you can have a share in a club. Is this just an alternative to it? Maybe it is. I I do feel it's a bit more of a sort of money making opportunity though for the club. Double double digit double digit millions to um, at least half a dozen clubs since this thing launched a couple of years ago. So definitely definitely a, a money spinner. But what about the idea that you have to pay for the privilege to engage? And they're saying, oh well, you know, only a few fans who live near the stadium can go to games. But what about those fans who pay, you know, hundreds of dollars, euros, yen, whatever you want to currency you'd like to choose for the privilege of watching their team on TV, buying merchandise, joining membership schemes? following them anyway on social media. Why do you have to pay to, to, to your, your your club to show your loyalty? Well, I think, you know, $1,000 to have the Smiths playing constantly throughout half-time is probably money, money well spent, isn't it? You can have your say on what topics we discuss on Sport Unlocked. Uh, this is the podcast sponsored by... No, no. Um, well, the... <laughs> well, of course, we wait to hear if uh, any socios are involved and cryptocurrency involved in the decision over the future of Kylian Mbappe, another of those big transfer sagas in his window involving Paris Saint-Germain. And if 160 million euros is really being offered by Real Madrid, with the player only having one year left on his contract, surely any normal business, any normal club would accept this. Yeah, but it's not a normal club or a normal business, which has been perfectly obvious from the day Qatar walked in. It is a club that is owned by a tiny Gulf state looking to make a statement on the world stage. And 160 million euros, like you say, Rob, for a player who will be available for free in four months, well, certainly in terms of negotiating a free transfer for next season, seems almost more uh, than, than, than he would warrant in this particular market, in this pandemic market. Um, of course, we're talking not about any player. The, the age, twenty-two, the the quality. I mean, this guy has is 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 the among the very very best. Uh, Jet Heel, guaranteed to score goals, guaranteed to sell you know commercials, etc. If that's what you're into, and, and someone that Real Madrid desperately want. What's quite interesting, I see it seems like a test. Real Madrid. Uh, of course, I've been one of the clubs that have been extremely unhappy with PSG's arrival in um, the world club game from the outset. They feel they have inflated the transfer market and salaries to prevent clubs who were kind of the giant whales having the game for themselves in the years before um, from from having, having it their own way. And they've obviously suing UEFA with the European Super League, etc. And 
one of the points they're making is UEFA is not a trust a, a, a regulator you can trust. It would not enforce financial fair play. So what what people close to PS uh, to Real Madrid have been saying is, well, look, if PSG was so serious about uh, adhering to financial regulations and acting like a proper club, they should be snapping our arm off because surely this deal for 160 million would make any immediate concerns of meeting financial fair play go away. And, you know, it's kind of a good point. The, on the other hand, you know, it would be really funny in a way if PSG said, all right, sure, give us 160, 180 or whatever, and Real Madrid have to pay this. Because in, in and of itself, with a player with four months to go, it is a really high price, Martin. Yeah, so I mean, in terms of you know UEFA's financial fair play, Real Madrid um, could probably say, well, you know, that's gone out the windows. We've talked about before. There's going to be this new luxury tax and salary cap. But I think it'd be much more difficult for them to satisfy La Liga's financial requirements if they sign him. Um, I think that that is the the bigger challenge for Real Madrid. Uh, how how are they actually able to afford it? I mean, you do have to say Real Madrid. It, they are amongst the top clubs. They are the people who've spent the least on transfers in, in the last 10 years, um, since they signed Gareth Bale. Um, since then, if you, if you look at what, what other clubs have spent, they are, they are we're talking about the elite, the, the people who join the Super League. They are amongst the lowest spenders on, on, on transfers. So maybe they do have a, um, some, some flexibility, but I think it's be... Um, strange if they were able to comply with La Liga, but maybe this is a, as you say, this is a power struggle. This is a, you know, La Liga and Real Madrid don't like each other, and certainly they don't like UEFA Real Madrid. So this is a, a probably a key moment actually in in that particular battle. Yeah, what a state! What a state football finds itself in. You know, we talked about this battle at the start of FIFA and the clubs and the leagues. We talked about. Bizarre cryptocurrencies now, you know, being sold on to fans. And now this situation of FFP, Real Madrid, UEFA, it, the game's in a right state, isn't it? Yeah. Anyone think you'd have a World Cup being held in a small, tiny country next year? Oh, we do. <laughs> Although Qatar have had some rare positive publicity, it seems, over the last week or so, being... Uh, part of the airlifts out of Kabul, so many flights, the US military flights going from there, the Qatar itself evacuating refugees, a lot of the world's media reporting actually quite positively from Qatar about their efforts, even one report showing some of the World Cup accommodation there being used to house refugees. Uh, some irritation in Qatar that uh, Amnesty this week have put out a new report on the World Cup related to worker conditions, uh, particularly as um, they're saying that they've actually helped Amnesty get out of Afghanistan. But of course, that doesn't take away from the fact we're about to get into the resumption of World Cup qualifying in those areas where we know the games are definitely all going ahead. And there will be a new focus, of course, on the conditions in, in Qatar. And this new Amnesty report this week is focusing really on the failure to properly investigate migrant worker deaths and it's really been one of the things we've seen throughout the entire build-up to the World Cup in Qatar. We don't have open inquests, we don't get clarity on the reasons for death. Often lots of perhaps unexplained younger people dying of heart conditions and things which then some attribute to um, working in that intense heat. Qatar 
if they want to be frustrated, they can be frustrated. But one thing doesn't stop the other thing from happening. I'm sure Amnesty have been working, well, I know they've been working diligently for a long time on compiling these reports. They're robust because they know there's going to be a um, a right of reply from Qatar, as there should be um, up with anything. The fact that they've done um, this very important job in in the um, evacuation of those who need to be evacuated from, from Afghanistan and that Kabul airport does not surely stop people scrutinizing other aspects of that country. Um, like any other country, you know, the, there are many, many um, streams of, of work, of information, of, of development happening in, all over the world. You can't say, well, hang on, pause reporting on everything else because we've done this nice gesture or this important gesture. And, and the fact that you're doing it undermines everything we're doing. That, sorry, that is very naive. That's not how the world works. So, yeah, I think they do deserve um, probably immense credit for some of the work they've done in, in, in evacuating people from, from this difficult situation in Afghanistan. But surely that doesn't preclude anyone from looking into other affairs of that country like anywhere else. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the um, this report is quite hard hitting. So, I mean, it, it, it's there's been thirty five deaths on um, on World Cup facilities, which is which the uh, the Qatari authorities say were non work related since twenty fifteen. Um, and I'm saying more than half of these um, unlikely to have had proper investigations carried out into the cause of death. They also say, like, for general migrant workers, um, I not specifically linked to the World Cup projects. I mean, the number of deaths runs into the thousands, um, which uh, which is obviously a sort of shocking number. Um, it's, uh, I think this is going to continue, isn't it, um, through the build-up? I don't know how many days there are, 400 or so days left to go. Uh, until the World Cup, this again, this, this, the, the, the scrutiny is only going to get more intense. And Amnesty have very cleverly, in, in a way, sort of put the pressure on the uh, the England national team to to play their part in, in in raising awareness. And we saw some international teams do this in March: Norway, Germany, Holland. Um, at the time, the the message coming out of the English Football Association was the, that the players would hold a meeting in September to decide on their course of action. But that's looking less likely to happen now, I'd say, based on what Gareth Southgate, the England manager, had to say when I asked him about it this week. And he started by reflecting on what he'd been told by the FA Chief Executive Mark Bullingham following a UEFA group visit to Qatar in the last week or so. I know that Mark was with UEFA in Qatar. So he spoke to me yesterday about what he'd seen and what he'd found. Um, you know, I'm very conscious that there's a lot of noise around what we should and shouldn't be doing in terms of um, Qatar. I think firstly, um, it's no more relevant to us at the moment than any other struggles in any other country, because at the moment we haven't even qualified to go to a World Cup. So it's, of course, and there, there seem to be issues that maybe we can help highlight if we get to Qatar. Um, and the fact that there's a tournament being hosted there is probably shining a light on those things. And it sounds, from what I'm hearing, as though that is helping to make change. Um, but I don't know enough. And I think for the players to be thinking about Qatar yet is too early. You know, they've got to be thinking about how we qualify. And there are numerous other issues we'll be 
asked to deal with in uh, the next few weeks, I'm sure. Um, so I'm not diminishing any importance of that, but I think um, we, uh, we've got to be conscious of what's immediately in front of us. So nothing imminent in terms of protest, I would say, from any of the England players in terms of highlighting human rights issues relating to Qatar. And I think really we do see in the game how there can be conflicts a player playing for a Qatari-owned club or a club with Qatari sponsors, how do they respond? Over the pre-season, you've had the Dutch captain, Ginny Wijnaldum, join Qatar-owned PSG. It'll be interesting to see, you know, if you ask the Dutch captain, who was part of the protest over workers' rights and human rights, Qatar, what his view is now whether he'll be allowed to speak freely. Uh, you know, and that, again, talks to the point about states perhaps owning football clubs and what they're for. Yes, they've put a really exciting football team together, but there's all these other issues about why they've done it, probably. The amnesty statement does actually highlight what they're still demanding. They still believe that there's an urgent need at this point for Qatar to strengthen its laws to protect workers from extreme heat, introducing mandatory respite breaks, improving the investigations and certification and compensation for migrant worker deaths, because that is something, as I was saying, we've not had throughout, which is a clear inquest into every single person who dies and then would be able to to see the build up, the conditions perhaps, you know, to the death. Oh, Rob, can I make a prediction? I, I don't think we're going to see any of this, not certainly in time. Uh, Qatar was awarded the World Cup on, I think, December the 2nd, 2010 in Zurich. We're now a decade on, or about a year and a half away from this. It's been a decade of building work, a decade of deaths, a decade of hot weather, a decade of working in, in these conditions. Now, with the World Cup, everything that needs to be built, almost everything, is almost ready. So it's a case of almost looking backwards. They're not going to do that. Yes, these FAs, etc., on their tours, sure they're going to be shown developments, etc. But the point Amnesty is making, or the points they've just raised there, they're not going to be met, are they? I mean, we're going to have the World Cup now. And then, I guess, for Qatar, the pressure, I guess, will be off because the attention of the world will be somewhere else. The World Cup in, in 2026 is in the United States and the, the sports media will 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 relocate somewhere else and it's focused somewhere else so job done of course a lot of the stadiums have been built or very close to being completed there's still a lot of work to go on in Qatar for the World Cup a lot of workers there who you know potentially are in extreme heat or or bad conditions who can be uh, potentially helped but Qatar has no shown if they're still asking for this now amnesty then uh, they haven't been listening for a decade necessarily on this of course the World Cup vote in December 2010 in Zurich was one of the triggers, we believe, for the whole instigation of the American investigations into FIFA that we saw really come to life with those wave of arrests in Zurich in May 2015 and the ongoing criminal trials, convictions of so many former members of the FIFA executive committee as it was. And this week, FIFA, which has always tried to portray itself as a victim in this entire scandal, has managed to secure that status being formalised by the US Department of Justice. And not only that, they're getting a load of cash back that's been um, recovered from these corruption cases. Um, $200 million plus they're expecting overall for FIFA and the Confederations. And already FIFA's getting uh, 
$34 million that will go into the FIFA Foundation, which they say is an independent foundation whose president now is uh, Gianni Infantino. Yeah, I mean... The, the the total sum which is uh, which was announced for the FIFA Foundation was two hundred and one million US dollars. Um, a, a third of that would it would go to Concacaf, the um, Caribbean, North American, and, and Central American Federation, and a, and a similar amount to the South American Federation Commonwealth. But it would all go to the FIFA Foundation for distribution. But as has been pointed out by Ken Bensinger, who wrote a very good book on FIFA. Um, whether this money actually materializes is a completely different thing. For example, um, Jose Hawila, who was supposed to forfeit $151 million, um, only $25 million of that has actually turned over to the Department of Justice before he died. So already there's a there's $125 million odd, which is, is whether is that actually going to materialize? I, I suspect it won't. And the money's set to stay in the US banking system as well. Yeah, Ken made a, uh, another really good point. He said the DOJ, in order to make this case, also needed a victim. You need to have a victim in order to have the the, the, the criminal who's committed the act. Um, so you kind of needed these organisations, FIFA, Comnable and CONCACAF, to, to have been robbed. And then once they have been robbed, they need to be... Uh, maybe parties to, to be repaid. And the fact it's taken so long suggests it took a really, really long time for um, the Department of Justice to find these organisations trustworthy enough to come up with this. And this this um, this um, agreement is really interesting. Like I said, the money has to go into the FIFA Foundation, but then also it has to be ring-fenced into another um, kind of element within that foundation. The money can only go to particular causes of, of fo- very specific football development. It's really going to be tightly controlled. And Rob's right; they didn't trust it to go into a Swiss bank account. Had to go into the uh, into a. They had to open a U.S. bank account in order to do this. Um, and the idea that these organisations are, are, are trustworthy, you also have to think Comnable and Concacaf were clearly the biggest victims of this because it was largely their money that was stolen. And the DOJ decided there is absolutely no way we can give it to those organisations independently. It has to be done this way. And while we're talking about Comnable and FIFA, etc., at the same time, one of the people indicted and essentially on the run, um, Marco Polo Del Nero, the former president of the Brazilian Football Federation, banned for life, has been taped recently secretly running the Brazilian Football Federation. FIFA have been asked to comment on this for weeks, if not months, and so far there's been a no comment. Surely FIFA, this organisation which now is the epitome of integrity and good governance, will want to have something to say well- on that. Let's hear from Gianni Fantino. This is the video message he put out after the cash was secured from the DOJ. This is a great victory for FIFA and a great victory for football. I want to sincerely thank the US justice authorities for their efforts in this respect, for their fast and effective approach in bringing these matters to a conclusion, and also for their trust generally. The truth is that thanks to their intervention back in 2015, we have been able to fundamentally change FIFA 
from a toxic organization at that time to a highly esteemed and trusted global sports governing body. So has FIFA really fundamentally changed since 2015? From, a, from a, a, an idea that there was naked theft, I'd say absolutely. There aren't people blatantly stealing millions of, of dollars worth of television rights. However, I, I would say that the structure that's allowed this kind of weird politics, um, loyalty above competence, this idea of um, decisions being made in order to buttress powerful figures, etc., that we remember from the, the Blatter era, I think a lot of that seems to still be there. And I think much of that has to do with the fact that there's been no real structural change. Almost like the idea whoever is put in charge will essentially go, go native, as it were, because the structures of football are almost designed for this type of behaviour where people are just trying to solidify power. And that's what we see with these accusations of a power grab by Infantino, whether it's trying to get the bigger and more frequent club World Cups, now the World Cup every two years as well. And we're seeing in the way that they're using the PR for that campaign, we've got former players, the FIFA legends, being uh, pushed in public, advancing this plan for World Cups in alternate years, which really seems Infantino trying to um, grab a stranglehold even further on the global game. Yeah, so there's meant to be a feasibility study being taken place into this two-yearly World Cup. Um, it just FIFA just aren't. I mean, it's, it's absolutely disgraceful. They're not even waiting for that. You know, this is a, a naked public relations push um, for the two-yearly World Cup. So we've got Javier Mascherano. Um, we had Yaya Torre coming out last week, and there. There is no dispute the fact that this sort of positive messages around the, having the World Cup every two years was being promoted by by FIFA. Um, why can't they wait for the feasibility study, which I'm sure, by the way, will uh, be positive? But even you know, even so, it's um, it, it just it, to me it just stinks. Yeah, absolutely. This this has all the hallmarks of one of those old kind of communist regimes, you know, where you have an election and, you know, 99% of the, the electorate and a 99% turnout is voted for the same bloke. It, it just, they could be a bit smarter, at least, if they're trying to pull the wall over everyone's eyes than, than, than have these footballers pretend to put the same message out as if it was organic on the same day or whatever. It, it, it just, it does, it does smell a bit. And it also annoys people. If you're trying to get the footballing community alongside you, at least talk to them sort of fairly, discuss it rationally. This kind of pretense, cat-handed pretense, to be honest, it's just a bit embarrassing. And FIFA keep pointing to the fact that at the Congress in May, 166 votes passed the approval from the proposal from the Saudi FA to actually go ahead with this feasibility study. But... Firstly, this suddenly emerged from the Saudis, who seems to be amongst Infantino's closest allies now in world football. And if you're to present this type of thing to the Congress, well, most of these countries, firstly, don't qualify for the World Cup as it stands. So it's in their interest for the tournament perhaps to take place more often. Or the fact that so many of these countries don't want to be seen to be going against the FIFA leadership because um, they know how the, the power works and how uh, it would potentially count against them if there is any dissent. 
Yeah, there may also be a factor that a lot of these countries that don't qualify, um, what's very important to the people who run these national associations is is they get their trip to the World Cup um, per DMs, nice hotels, very nice uh, travel. Um, and if it's going to happen every two years rather than every four years, well, you know, the, for, for many people, they would think this was a no-brainer. We we want this for ourselves, never mind what's good good for football. And that might people might say that's a, a cynical thing, but uh, you know I've spoken to people in different parts of the world, Europe, Asia, Africa, who say the same. The same that is for a lot of these countries who don't qualify. That that's a really um, important factor for the people who run the associations. Yeah, and sound like a stuck record here. We've been saying it throughout this particular podcast. It's this idea that. What's good for FIFA is good for football. What's good for National FA is good for football. But there are more actors invested in this game from grassroots professional clubs to leagues to players who have next to no say in how any of this happens in, in the way the game is structured moving forwards. And look, you could make a case for... Um, FIFA and UEFA or whoever's dominance to be challenged from a legal standpoint. Because if 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 you've invested billions of dollars or hours and hours of time, except whatever, and you have absolutely no say in how anything is done, that might feel a little bit like an abusive relationship. Yeah, so for one uh, highly respected international sporting body to another, we have Thomas Bach uh, went to the opening ceremony of the Paralympics. Um, Paralympics has kicked off in in Tokyo um, again with restrictions on on numbers attending, uh, all the sort of things we, you guys saw in the Olympics there. Back going is quite interesting because he uh, he didn't go to the opening ceremony of the last Paralympics in in Rio, which was the first time in sort of living memory an IOC president hadn't been to that. Uh, do you remember why that was the case, guys? The official reason was he had to go to the funeral of the former West German president. But, Tarek, there were other things that had gone on in Brazil during the Olympics. Of course, that was enough of a reason perhaps for IOC members not to want to go back there. And in fact, Thomas Bach's never been back to Brazil. I don't think since the Rio Games. Oh, that's a shame. Um, no, there was a, there was um, one of the more memorable incidents of the Rio twenty sixteen Olympics was um, that morning, the early dawn raid on the room of Patrick Hickey, who was the head of the Irish contingent at the Olympics. He was wanted at the time for ticket scalping, illegal ticket selling. And um, there's famous video of Patrick having his opening his hotel door, for some reason, absolutely stark naked to um, to, to this gang of uh, Brazilian police and arrested. And poor old Patrick spent a year in um, Brazilian custody while being investigated for ticket scalping. He was due to go back to face trial. That that didn't happen. And the worry was that Thomas Bach, as president of the IOC, might somehow be implicated into that and, and be dragged in. So there's there a sense that, you know, Bach, by going to the Paralympics so soon after the, the incident involving Hickey, might be called in at least for questioning, etc., would make um, 
extremely bad imagery, perhaps not as bad as uh, the one that befell Patrick Hickey when he opened his door that morning. Yeah, that Pat Hickey case still not been resolved, has it? Um, interesting to know what happened with, to the £350,000 um, that was the court bond paid uh, by the Association of National Olympic Committees, ANOC, because, um, yeah, it's uh, it, it would be an inexpensive payment for them if um, nothing's happened with that. No, the, the other thing with Bark being in, in Tokyo, it's raised the hackles of some of the local media there as well, hasn't it? Because if you remember this, these games like the Olympics before them are being held while there is a spiking coronavirus crisis in, in, in Tokyo and, and, and Japan. It's, it's the numbers have kind of shot up in a, in a relative sense in, in, in Japan's case since the, the, the Olympics. And, and they, they've been very careful about letting people who aren't there for essential business into Tokyo. Um, Bark stayed in, in Japan for a couple of days afterwards. And I remember um, there was a film crew spotted him out and about in the street um, and were, were concerned and were wondering why he hadn't left. Um, the, the, again, this might be a, a lot to do with Japanese politics. You know, Bark's not the only one who, who hung around for a day or two afterwards, of course. Um, but the fact is, he's he's gone back for for the Paralympics when he's not an essential part of those games has 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 got people um, talking about him being there again. And one of the key things that was raised in Japan was Thomas Bach and the IOC had spent the games telling athletes not to leave the bubble, not to leave the athlete village, not to do any sightseeing. And the moment that the uh, flame had been extinguished, there was Bach going out sightseeing himself. Yeah, but I suppose with that with that point, Japan. For for those of us who are there, we have to do these um, coronavirus tests every three days. I suppose by the end of two weeks or whenever the the, the, the quarantine had been lifted, the the, the foreign people, bark etc., probably would have been just as in the same in the same boat as any Japanese citizen. So it makes me think at that point the, the criticism of him there afterwards was a little bit for the for domestic political consumption but the fact he's gone back might not have been the wisest idea because again he comes in as a fresh um traveler starts from zero again and, and as far as they're concerned the risk is raised again and the paralympics do continue in japan and we'll be looking forward to watching all the action from there so we've got time for this week. Thank you, guys. And thank you, everyone, for listening. As ever, you can send any feedback or get extra info at Sport and Lot on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. And we're also grateful if you could hit that subscribe button on whichever podcast platform you're listening to us on. But for now, thank you for listening and goodbye. <laughs>